For April 8th, 2013, it's the Overthinking It podcast, episode 249. WrestleMania is being undertaken. Welcome to the Overthinking It podcast, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny it probably doesn't deserve. Uh, Usually, I am at the bleeding edge of uh, America, but I am not tonight, because culturally, the leading edge, so leading and so edgy that it it cuts and draws blood and is the bleeding edge uh, of America. That edge is in... busted wide open! (laughs) That edge (laughs) is in New Jersey tonight at WrestleMania... Uh, which is being um, which is being fought? What contested? What's the verb? <laughs> WrestleMania is being contested. Is being. <laughs> is being uh, I mean, the, it's it's manic. You know, <laughs> it's it's being wrestled. Uh, yes, it's, it's being, being wrestled. Yeah, sure. <laughs> it's being grappled. They're grappling it. Is being under is being undergone by undertaken. The in fact, undertaken is probably the best one. <laughs> WrestleMania is being undertaken, and we have a report from our own Overthinking It correspondent, uh, Matthew Belinky, live at the scene. We'll get to that in just a second. But uh, the panel on the podcast tonight, it's one of our famous two-handers, so drink. It's me and and Peter Fenzel, so drink. (laughs) Fenzel is first in the alphabet, so drink. (laughs) Sorry, I've been been at this. What? Yeah. (laughs) Been at this, been at this for a while. Yeah. Um, so, uh, so Pete, hey, uh, Jurassic Park 3D came out this weekend. What? It, no, it did. I, I swear. No, I believe you. I believe you. I believe that they did that. I actually remember seeing the trailer for that and being super excited for it. I, I was busy this weekend. I didn't get a chance to go see it, but it sounds like one of those 3D adaptations I'd be into if, if I saw those. It kind of depresses me to think that there are people, in fact, many of the audience for this, this very podcast, um, there are people for whom uh, – uh, there are people who are not, rather, sorry, I should get my relative pronouns in the correct case. Uh, there are people who are not old enough to have seen Jurassic Park in the theater. Though, I, you know, I'm not old enough to have seen Star Wars in the theater, and I'm sure that depresses some people who are older than me. It's, uh, it's just the march of time, the inexorable march of time. Um, golden lads and girls all must, etc. But uh, I, I feel like that's kind of a beautiful thing, though, right? That there's, like, a whole generation of children who could, like, potentially approach Jurassic Park with open eyes, or, like, who could have their own Jurassic Park. That it means that I mean, like I, I don't know. I compared aging once to a friend of mine to like being the elves in like Tolkien, where it's like all the beautiful stuff that the elves really love happens like really early on in their story, right? And then like they stick around, they don't age necessarily, but like the beautiful things variously go missing, right? The Silmarils are gone, the Oath of Fëanor does all those terrible things, the tree is gone, and all that stuff, the two trees and all, and the lamps and everything like that. Um, and so the elves get progressively sadder because the world stops coming up with cool new stuff one of the cool things about kids being around who haven't seen jurassic park yet is that there will be cool things in the world that they will see and they will be new cool things right and they will be good for them and then louis armstrong somewhere will be singing about what a wonderful world it is and there'll be dinosaurs so there you go i know it's before the question we don't usually rant before the question but i think we've all got that special wrestlemania spirit tonight so i just came off the top rope with it right away so hit it with a folding chair but yeah but we do have a question right we do have a question we absolutely, uh, we absolutely do. But what you, um, you know, what you say, uh, uh, what you say reminds me of something that, um, 
that Tom Stoppard wrote in uh, in Travesties. No, not in Travesties. In in Indiana Jones: The Last Crusade. <laughs> no, okay, Crystal Skull, right? In Crystal Skull. No. You wrote Indiana Jones: The Last Crusade, right? With big parts of it. Oh, he did. Uh, he wrote he Star Star Wars. Um, uh, what two or two or three or something? <laughs> I, I don't know. But no, uh, it's not. It's in Arcadia. Sorry, they all have one word titles. It's very difficult to uh, to keep them straight in my head. It's the one about chaos theory, uh, not the one right. about uh, Dadaism, right? So yeah. um, you know the idea that that like well there will be another Jurassic Park for another generation of children, right? Like there there is um, uh, in that place Septimus, who is a tutor, is uh, tutoring his tutee and uh she is a a prodigious a bright young prodigious student and she expresses great uh great regret and like she's she's actually kind of broken up about the fact that like all these great greek plays burned in the library of alexandria and things that um you know things great great works of literature and philosophy that we might have known uh mathematics and so forth that we might have known um just uh, are are lost to the ages and and uh he says no we have we have like eight plays from Aeschylus six from Euripides i may not be getting the numbers right but he you know you should you should no more mourn for them than you should from a a, a buckle uh lost on your shoe, and then and then he says one of the most like beautiful things in in modern drama, and this is why I it it, it like kind of chokes me up every time uh, I read it. And you reminded me of it, Pete. So you know I have to make you sit here and endure it. So uh, gird your loins. Girded. <laughs> he says, um, and th- this is the quotation: "We shed as we pick up, like travelers who must carry everything in their arms, and what we let fall will be picked up by those behind." The procession is very long and life is very short. We die on the march, but there's nothing outside the march, so nothing can be lost to it. The missing plays of Sophocles will, be tur- will turn up piece by piece or be written again in another language. Ancient cures for diseases will reveal themselves once more. Mathematical discoveries, glimpse and loss to view will have their time again. You know, uh, the idea... Um, the idea that there will be another Jurassic Park, you know, perhaps a Cretaceous Park or a Cenozoic Park, uh, <laughs> <laughs> right? That um, uh, that that like uh, someone else is going to is going to be into that. That's very. I don't know. That's very. That's very hopeful. It is. It is definitely. And you, but you know what? Uh, so what you're saying is that yes, like the things of the past may have left us, but at some point in the future, there'll be another generation that will hear echoing throughout the halls of their great gathering places. Finally, <laughs> the Rock has come back to the inexorable march of time. <laughs> Um, so, uh, I, I guess as a question, let's pitch, uh, let's pitch 3d, uh, conversions to one another and to the audience. Um, you're first in the alphabet. So, uh, so what's yours? Uh, well, I will, I will preface it by, by quickly saying, uh, you know, one of the, uh, one of the, the very much sort of lower order poetical invocations of a similar sort of concept that I tended to use as a mantra for a while was Rudyard Kipling, uh-huh. right? Where he's what, like, they will come back, they will come back as sure as the green fern grows. He never squandered tree or leaf, why would he squander souls, 
right? Uh, and I use that as my as my internet uh, uh, signature on like message boards about getting back into shape after getting out of shape. <laughs> like things come back, things return. You know, like the Rock comes back to Charlotte, North Carolina, or to Giants. <laughs> yeah, exactly. If winter comes, can you know, can spring be uh, far behind? I guess, right? That's that's winter is coming, and that's a whole other topic. <laughs> well, we'll get to that after our uh, after our live interview with Belinky. But um, yeah, so, yeah, yeah. Uh, I don't know. What's your what's your take on on Rudyard Kipling? Are you generally pro Kipling, or are you? Oh, pro- okay. oh, I totally love Rudyard Kipling. I actually I started I rediscovered him back in like the mid aughts when I was uh, you know working at a hospital. Um, and uh, and I just bought a big collection of Rudyard Kipling stuff. I, I read Rudyard Kipling ironically, and I don't mean that in the sense of like I read him thinking he's bad and wanting him to be good. <laughs> uh, right, for which go back and see, um, go back and see our episode about irony because I think it's very I think it's very important. It's actually one that's going to go on the greatest hits album one day. Yeah, yeah, yeah. But I mean, Rudyard Kipling is pretty, it's pretty touching and difficult sometimes to read Rudyard Kipling in the modern era, in particular during the sort of height of the Iraq war and the sort of insanity and the feeling of loss of control around the invasion of Iraq, right? And it's because a lot of Rudyard Kipling's poetry is about the British imperial experience in India, because he has personal experience there and he writes about it a lot. And so one of the big questions with Rudyard Kipling and the interpretation of Rudyard Kipling is like, does he actually mean what he's saying? Because if he does, he's kind of a huge jerk, right? Right? Like it's it's um, and if is the big poem, right? Like um, the the yeah, one that sure. gets posted in bathrooms and in high school weight rooms at parochial schools. You know, like it's well, like also uh, it gets it gets read. There's a there's a great bit of Joan Didion that's collected in political fictions where she talks about being at a political rally where Rudyard Kipling's if is read aloud to like uh, you know if you can fill the unforgiving minute with sixty seconds worth of distance run yours is the world and everything that's in it uh, a chilling line right from the point of view of colonialism but uh, but and which is more you'll be a man my son yeah right? but like, the, yeah and to me the interesting thing about that that poem is that none of it is about the guy who's actually talking right or is it really about the guy who's actually talking right it's all about him like telling these things to his son but but he says very very little about his own relative success or failure in doing these things mm-hmm. Right, and I think that that's one of the big uh, kind of tragedies and sublimities of imperialist literature, and I don't mean of the the project of the literature itself, but the the tragedy and sublimity that it seeks to emulate, that it seeks to communicate, that it seeks to articulate, sure. uh, is the the sublimity and tragedy of going out there with a grand ambition of an accomplishment for your something that you feel will both simultaneously glorify you and fulfill you and also do a good thing for somebody else because I think people they often believe that when they go out there and they're doing these things that they're actually doing something good for somebody um, and of course we are approaching it from the perspective that that this is less the case than they would have thought um, which is not a controversial opinion uh, but uh, uh, that like when you're going to India perhaps the Indians aren't as happy to have you there as you might believe that they do right. they are uh, but uh, but like part of the the literature is capturing that feeling of disenchantment with the the ultimate failure of your project and and Kipling was writing for long enough that by the by the sort of maturity of his work, the writing was kind of on the wall for a lot of the British Imperial project. And it was pretty obvious that, like, you know, a lot of the people there didn't really want them around. And that, like, perhaps you were going to go die in a foreign land for no reason. You know, and it's, it's like um, one of my favorite Kipling poems is The Unt, uh, which is about camels. 
<laughs> um, it's it's about a parade. It's about a long march through India that is held up because the camels that they're bringing with them are very stubborn and spit all the time, and uh, and it's like it's really tedious and frustrating to have to deal with these camels. Who to the speaker of the poem and it's written in dialect, which is the other charming thing about Kipling is it's like <laughs> written in like not, not probably not Cockney. It's probably like you know Manchusian or whatever you want to call it or whatever. I don't know. It's in some it's in some like lower class British dialect. Uh, English dialect in particular. And, uh, and it's like, so it, it's clear that he's not a guy who thought that when he was growing up, he would emerge with a great familiarity with camels, right? And that they were going to be a fact of his life, but now they are. <laughs> and, and the poem is kind of sad because it actually, the way it ends is with the, uh, the camel finally, when you're starting to get it to move, uh, it dies. <laughs> Like, right? Like, you finally, it stopped spitting, it stopped protesting and biting people, you finally get it to stop walking, and then it drops dead. And when it drops dead, it tends to drop dead in the water supply, and then it kills all of your friends and you. And that's like, that's how, like, the poem ends, right? It ends with, like, uh, the line is, and then, of course, we dies. Because uh, it's just sort of a throwaway. Like, the camel pisses us off, it annoys us, and in the end, it kills us by poisoning our water. Uh, and you can read it as a very flippant take almost like sort of a minstrelsy of imperialism where it's like oh these cockneys in india are having such a grand old time look how silly it is that they're frustrated with what they're encountering there because they're fish out of water or you can read it as like uh really sad (laughs) and kind of deeply bitingly funnily darkly ironic about like um the the sort of frustrated aspirations the things that you end up dealing with as a person when you end up uh, getting involved in these grand projects, mm-hmm. uh, and I think that, um, and then the, the loss that happens when you when you uh, when you no longer are possessed of that sense that the good things are going to happen to you, right? Uh, and, and, I, and I think that um, when like when like Sean like Sean Michaels right <laughs> in wrestling, you know, like when he's not, he's not wrestling anymore, he's not the guy on the big title card. But we'll talk more about that stuff later. <laughs> anyway, I'm very excited about wrestling. So anyway. Uh, Speaking of great things that happen to people, speaking – I mean have I adequately addressed Kipling? I think I adequately addressed <laughs> And how? So. Yeah. I love Gunga Din. You know, The Road to Mandalay is a great Sinatra song. I didn't know it was a Kipling poem until I discovered it, right? Like he, Kipling has a wonderful series of poems, and I forget what it's called. Uh, I wish that I wasn't hooked into my headset so I could go grab my volume. But he, And I'll put it in the comments. He has a wonderful set of poems that are parodies of the styles of poets throughout history, uh, but they're all about cars. So it's like, what would Homer write if he were to write a poem about a car? Right. You know, what, what would uh, – and I, I find them really amusing, and I really like them. And I think he has a good sense of humor and a good sense of of, uh, of kind of the absurdity of what he considered to be modern. That right? used and to I be like a, that stuff. sort of a staple of, of education and sort of composition in, you know, uh, written composition, right? Like the, the idea that you would imitate the, the voice of great writers of the past, that you would try to write – as Hemingway did, you know, or that you would try to write as, as, oh, I, you know, I don't even know that uh, Dryden or Pope or Homer or some, someone like that. And I, you know, I don't know. I think it's, I think it's a shame. I think it's something that's been lost in this, um, you know, in this sense of kind of like education as being uh, a process of, of gradually expressing more and more perfectly your own uniqueness rather than sort of gradually addressing uh, more and more completely um, the circumstances of the world as you find them, right? Right, right, right. Exactly, exactly. Oh, the Kipling is called The Muse Among the Motors. 
That's yeah. what it's called. <laughs> so you can go check that out. I don't have to put it in the comments now. Great, great um, title. <laughs> um, so, uh, but yeah, but I feel like speaking of things that should come back and speaking of unlikely vehicles being put into hilarious situations and speaking of uh, fish out of water comedy, uh, I think that the 3D movie that I want to see, the 3D conversion, did we even ask the question yet or did we just agree? Oh, yeah, yeah. No, no, no. Pitch, pitch, pitch one another a 3D <laughs> conversion in honor of A Jurassic 3D conversion? Park. Yeah. So what is, what is, what for you... I mean, like, this is a rhetorical question because I'm going to answer it immediately after I ask it. What for you is the greatest fish-out-of-water comedy about unlikely vehicles uh, that came out of, let's just say, 1993? It's Cool Runnings with John Candy and Dougie Duck. Uh, I would love to see, because Cool Runnings has been coming up a lot in conversation lately, and I realize that it's actually been coming up a lot in conversation for me consistently since it came out in 1993. It is a movie that I often talk about. It's the movie about the Jamaican bobsled team. Uh, It is a serviceable and funny comedy. It is not a groundbreaking movie. It is not going to change your life. Uh, It's no Mighty Ducks or Sandlot or anything like that. It's not going to transform your existence. Um... But uh, recently, somebody, a comedian I know, sent an email to a bunch of comedians asking for stills from classic comedy movies, uh-huh. right? Just, just, hey, send me a still photo from a classic comedy movie. And, like, all of the initial responses that I saw and that I thought of seeing were John Candy movies. And it was kind of hilarious that it's like, for some reason, there's part of John Candy that's kind of in a lot of our memories and we're still trying to process. If you're too young to have seen John Candy, if he's sort of fallen out of your arms like limes in a hilarious infomercial meme picture, um, like, uh, and, and you have yet to pick up the work of John Candy as a, as a young person, I feel like nothing will help you understand the comedy of the previous generation better than like some solid John Candy movies because <laughs> it's sort of a time that has passed, but it's time that that he embodied when it was very vital. Yeah, sure. Um, when and, yeah, you got to look back at Uncle Buck, or you got to look back yeah. at like planes, trains, and automobiles to sort of understand. Sure, yeah, the, the yeah, way yeah. the way that like what the Apatovian bromance right is the yeah. uh, is the you know probably defining. Um, comedic statement of our of our generation right yeah exactly if you're like oh why are movies so bad nowadays you can disabuse yourself of the opinion that they're worse now than they used to be by watching summer rental which is a hilarious movie about a sailboat race (laughs) and also you get to look at the covers of the rental boxes if you rent them on vhs which you probably shouldn't do but if you manage to find a vhs copy you can't rent them what are you going to rent them i mean buy them out of some box in somebody's basement at a yard sale but uh but they all had those hilarious hand-drawn covers right the old john candy movies where it was like a caricature of him with a giant head and a little body in a sailboat or something sure um but yeah but cool runnings uh i feel like i would love i would love to watch a cool runnings 3d adaptation that went entirely over the top with the application of 3d to the point where it was actively uncomfortable to watch like we're like this thing, the bobsled races are like super intense and you're like right there in dougie doug's face and like most of the shots or like john candy walks into the airport and it's just has this enormous feeling you know john candy himself is this huge imposing figure that projects out from the screen about two-thirds of the distance to your face like i want a movie that uses the 3d medium to communicate the size and presence of john candy which is something has not yet been captured on film to my experience 
is. Uh-huh. Uh, we need to remaster it. We need to remaster our past. Sure. So I would say Cool Runnings is my answer, is the movie that I want to see 3D adapted. And I also think that it would be like a great midnight, a midnight showing thing. Like if, if, it's, if the point of doing these re-releases of, like, of like Jurassic Park and stuff is that they're relatively easy and straightforward to do, even if they're not cheap, uh, like they're, they, we can just do it and we sort of know it's going to have a built-in audience, then like you could probably do a Cool Runnings adaptation on the cheap and run it out as like a midnight movie to a bunch of places and it could probably scrape together a couple thousand bucks a screen i think sure. I, I don't know i know i would like to see it maybe i'm just maybe i'm just an, an anachronistic relic at this point from like the plesticine era uh but uh whatever the plasticine era like the, like rudyard kipling you see the the handwriting on the wall as far as your your particular brand of cinematic imperialism right exa- exactly maybe these audience members are not so happy to have john candy um, you know, the, the candy, the John Candy Raj. Uh, maybe, maybe Mowgli would not be wise if I happened to be the panther or giant bear that was trying to give him advice in a given situation. But anyway, yeah. I mean, um, Kipling did give us tailspin, so there's that much. Yeah. Uh, but uh, what about you, Matt? Answer your own question. Well, I said, you know, I never said anything about it having to be uh, a movie. Though I guess that's Ooh. what we assume. But I would like, um, I would like to see a 3D uh, upconversion of the classic 1980s situation comedy Night Court. Uh, <laughs> <laughs> I love it. I love it. <laughs> because I, I think that like if you've ever been in a courtroom, if you've ever like fought a traffic ticket or been involved, uh, I hope you haven't, but been involved in some other you know dispute or something like that. Um, well, I, I hope you haven't, and if you were, I hope it was resolved in your favor. But the, uh, you know, the the thing is that there's like there's this very clear demarcation of space, and there are these like three dimensional masses um, that are sort of deployed right in the theater of the courtroom to great effect, right? Like raising the judge up and sort of uh, having their, uh, having their little box, the bench that they're sitting in, like be, uh, be extruded a little bit from the witness stand to one side of them or to the, you know, court reporters uh, position on the other side. And then like, there's, there's usually a, like a, uh, like a rail, like almost like an altar rail in old fashioned Catholic churches um, that separates the gallery from the, you know, from the, um, uh, the attorney's tables. Right. And then there's, then there's the jury box uh, off and off to one side, right. That this is a, I, actually there was no jury in night court, but uh, you know, right, exactly. It was mostly like procedural stuff. Yeah. These people were yeah. being just arraigned or something, but, the, but um, <laughs> I don't think it was, arraignments <laughs> I don't, actually that's a good question what exactly were the legal proceedings of night court it's been a long time since i've watched one. yeah i guess I, I guess they weren't I, I mean i guess they weren't arraignments they were actually they were trials but um mm-hmm. yeah so so there we you know so there we have it and i i just think like and then also you know the uh like there's a lot of j- joke made about uh mass like bull you know like is is huge you know and he's supposed yeah. to be um just this imposing presence and i think that like much as the sort of corpulent nature of john candy uh were um you know could be important i think that the corpulent nature of bull the sort of immovable uh rock you know almost as much of a rock as the rock or a rock before there was the rock right like um uh (laughs) standing there and uh yeah absolutely and i think that this would i think that this would add 
um, I think that this would add something. Um, and also, uh, when, when John Larroquette like swings his leg over the chair, the backwards chair in order to sit down on it, that would be one of those great 3d gags where the leg kind of, you know, fan kicks out at you, uh, <laughs> like one of those like Muppet movie attractions at an amusement park where the, I don't know, Swedish chef is throwing rolls at your head or something. Um, so this is my, <laughs> awesome. this is my idea. Uh, night court. Night Court, awesome. I feel like I feel like these will both be huge financial successes. <laughs> Night Court and Cool Runnings at 3D. You know, so see it. Buy your tickets. So we're going to talk a little more uh, about some television in just a second. But first, let's um, let's call up uh, let's call up Belinky over there at WrestleMania and see uh, if he has a report uh, for us as to what's going on. the horn live from wrestlemania with overthinker matthew belinky and this isn't one of our gags where we say we're live and we actually aren't and it's like a big in joke matt is actually at wrestlemania matt set this in for us what is it like there in the interest of full disclosure i am i'm reporting live from the nathan's hot dog stand at the 300 level of metlife stadium (laughs) Uh, (laughs) it's actually not not very crowded here at the nathan's hot dog because it's gotten to that point in the evening where, you know, there are like 10 matches at WrestleMania, and they're sort of like, you know, they build on each other, and they build on each other in sort of intensity, and they also build on each other at the level of pyrotechnics involved in the opening. So, like, the first guys come out, and just some, like, some sparklers, some sort of Fourth of July-style sparklers go off, and then there's, like, some some sort of, like, you know, mild fireworks that shoot up 10 feet in the air, and then there's the fireworks that actually, like, the legit fireworks that sort of launch from behind the stadium, and now we're getting to the point where when people walk out, there's sort of full wraparound fireworks that sort of shoot out 360 degrees uh, all the way around the stadium. Uh, there's, there's uh, we're at the third-to-last match, uh, Triple H is fighting Brock Lesnar, no holds barred, um, no, uh, only pinfalls or submissions, uh, and also, uh, Triple H has to retire if he loses. Uh, so I'm excited. <laughs> <laughs> That's awesome. It sounds great. It sounds, it sounds spectacular. It's in my home state of New yeah. Jersey too, right? It is. It is. It's a Midlife Stadium, formerly known as Giant Stadium. I'll always think of it as Giant Stadium, even though I think the Giants and Jets sort of have co-ownership of it. I mean, here's, isn't here's isn't what I think of it. Okay, go ahead. Go ahead. Yeah. I mean, here's the thing. Like, some cultures are fun, and it's fun to be around people who are really passionate about something. Because in our day-to-day lives, it's like, you know, you go to your job, and people might like their job, but they're not, like, really excited to be there. Um, you know, not, not in this way. So it's like, even if you went to, like, let's say, like, a Civil War reenactment or, like, a rodeo. I have no particular fondness for rodeo, but I think of it were, like, a big rodeo thing where, like, people have been waiting all year to see the rodeo. I'd be, like, excited to, like, be there and excited to be around it. Uh, you know, so it's the same sort of feeling I have when I, like, went to Comic-Con. Uh, but I happen to, I actually do like wrestling. So it's, it's, it's not just being around people who are excited. I, myself, am excited. Um, and it's, it's... The interesting thing is that, like, you know, the people are like, oh, like, wrestling is scripted. You know, how can you get... Here's the thing. The most predictable match of the evening was probably the most exciting, which was CM Punk fighting The Undertaker. The deal with The Undertaker is that he has not lost at WrestleMania ever in 20 years. <laughs> Literally, his record is 20 and zero. And of course, at this point, like, the record is like part of the lore. Um, and then, you know, with every passing year, it becomes increasingly obvious that he's never going to lose at WrestleMania. And so this year, he's like fighting CM Punk. And CM Punk, you know, obviously in the weeks leading up to WrestleMania, he's making this big deal about, like, he is the one 
the one who was going to finally take the Undertaker down. Nobody actually believed it would happen, but it was a fantastic match. It was legitimately like the Undertaker, considering he's probably like pushing 50, was actually, you know, did, did some amazing things in the ring. CM Punk is like, he's much younger, he's agile, he does like flippy flip things, which are fun to watch. Um, and I definitely, you know, and it was, it was like at the very end, you know, after they've been fighting for a half an hour and they must have been tired, like CM Punk picks up the Undertaker and like sort of hoists him over his head. And, you know, I, I think you would have to post photos for you to get the, get, get the full impact of that. But The Undertaker is like a 300-pound man, and CM Punk, although large compared with any of the overseeking staff, um, is not that large. And so, like, you know, it was an impressive spectacle. But, I mean, just, just to be clear, you know, anybody who is not sitting in one of, like, the $1,000 seats that are, like, right down on the floor next to the ring is basically watching the Jumbotron, you know, because you can't really see what's going on in the ring. Uh, whereas at the Jumbotron is basically a simulcast with the pay-per-view. And so, like, WrestleMania at, like, a giant stadium like this is basically the world's most... It's, it's a giant viewing party. You know, it's like basically you're all just watching WrestleMania on the Jumbotron together. But that's fine, because you're watching WrestleMania with the world's biggest wrestling fans. Um, <laughs> you know, so, I mean, but definitely, like, everybody has their eyes, like, 90% of the time on the Jumbotron. And then, like, you know, occasionally... You glance at the ring just to remind yourself that it actually is happening right there. <laughs> awesome, awesome. And then the jumbotrons yeah. are really advanced now, right? It's like a giant high definition uh, television. Screen, yeah, it's, right? it's a nice, it's a nice jumbotron. I mean, like it's definitely, definitely comparable <laughs> to to watching it. I just, yeah. So it's like it's like you're watching it on TV, and then but several then when the fireworks go off, like they go off like ten feet from your head because you're sitting in the back row of the stadium and they set up the fireworks right, right behind you. Um, so I don't know. I mean, it's, it's, it's a lot of fun. And, and my wife, who is not a wrestling fan by any stretch is just a joy be here. And I think, you know, she's, she's mostly enjoying me enjoying stuff, which I think is a good quality for like a wife to have. But um, I mean, one, one day I'm going to have to go see like some very popular Israeli pop musician. And, and hopefully have the same sense of joy. Uh, right. as, as a husband, do you have that quality too? Because it's a very good quality for a husband to have also. It is. It is. I recommend it. If you can, I mean, when we saw Bon Jovi at Giant Stadium back in 2004, you seemed to enjoy that somewhat vicariously through me as well. Uh, that, no, I mean, well, I, I feel like I enjoyed Bon Jovi at his own, but I feel like you, as a, you were sort of the virtual to my Dante. And you allowed me to have a deeper appreciation for how much those people. Um, I guess. I guess that I, I don't want to compare about Joey to like hell. So, but I also don't want to compare about Joey to the Paradiso because nobody likes the Paradiso. Yeah, it's just true, not. True. It's not anybody's favorite. You know, of of that of the trilogy. It's the Godfather Three of the Divine Comedy. Yeah, yeah, yeah. <laughs> you know, which is like the Godfather Three, still nominated for Best Picture. But compare with the Godfather one and two, so I don't know. I guess goodbye, Joey be Purgatorio. <laughs> I will say that it it's does like place. <laughs> the Bon Jovi Purgatorio I feel like, is I feel like... like there might be something to that though. Because it's like his songs are not about like they're not always about triumph. They're about sort of like the struggle and the sort of like the sort of like happy struggle of life. You know, and that's sort of what Purgatory is. It's like, sure, we have to run around this track, you know, for 500 years, but after that, it's going to be great. It's the same thing with Bon Jovi. It's like, we got to go out and we got to, like, fight, fight in the streets with pipes every day. But, like, that's who we are. Like, you know, we wouldn't be anyone else. 
Awesome. Is that what WrestleMania is like, too, or is it a little bit different? <laughs> it's, I, I don't know. I, I, I feel like I'm, I'm confused about what I'm comparing to watch. If I'm comparing <laughs> WrestleMania to Bon Jovi or comparing WrestleMania to the Purgatorio, and if so, what translation? Because I feel like that makes a difference. <laughs> it does. It does. I mean, is it in an English version of the Terzarima, or is are they doing a, like a prose but, version? Here's the thing. It's like I feel like you lose a lot if you don't have the Terzarima. But also, like if you try to recreate that rhyme scheme, then you're basically like you you you're going so far from the actual words that were used because the same words don't rhyme. So it's like, do you want to like get a sense of like what it must have sounded like rhyme wise, or do you want to translate what he actually wrote? Because, right. by the way, the best WrestleMania ringside interview. <laughs> <laughs> What's happening at WrestleMania right now? Is Triple H wrestling right now? Lots of hot dogs are being sold. Here, let me peek in. Let me peek in. It's literally one of those sort of like notice qualifications that hold barred. So like the Spanish gymnastics table has been destroyed several times. It's like somebody's gotten slammed to the table. They brought in a replacement table, and then that table has also been destroyed. Um, oh, it's one of those things. It's Triple H doing his um, and like, also, he's bleeding out of his head. He's walking around really slow. He's like, oh, I'm so hurt. I'm Triple yeah. H. Oh. And also, like, well, yeah. in, the, in the last match, the Undertaker match, I, I, uh, I texted about, I tweeted about um, Chekhov's urn, which is that the Undertaker's urn was sort of sitting by the side of the ring, prominently featured. And you just knew that somebody was going to hit somebody with the urn, which happened. And in this match, you have um, Chekhov's heartbreak kid. Because, of course, uh, as Pete knows, Shawn Michaels, the heartbreak kid, a Triple H best friend, doesn't wrestle anymore because of, like, a neck injury. But he's sort of, like, out there for more support. And also probably to hit Brock Lesnar in the back of the head with, like, a sledgehammer when the ref isn't looking. So, so the check out heartbreak kid is a good play. Yeah, the, the sweet chin music will be playing before the evening is over. <laughs> Definitely. Yes, that is, that is that's one of my favorite... Uh, one of my favorite... Um, Finishing moves because it also sounds like it could be like a like a cocktail or yeah <laughs> yeah exactly yeah or like a, a night at a piano chin. it's great sweet chin yeah I know the sweet the sweet chin music <laughs> um, it's like how long is he gonna call himself heartbreak kid anymore because it was one thing when he was like you know it is mid to early tw- like you know twenties and now he's not I mean I guess he's still a handsome man but he's he's not a kid. He's like, you know, it's like at what point does Billy the Kid become Billy, Billy, just regular Billy, or perhaps William? Yeah, like when are boys to men, like just the men? Uh-huh. I mean, apparently that's never, that, that still hasn't happened, but oh. I don't know. Maybe this is the day that the Heartbreak Kid becomes the, the heart, the, the man. Yeah, I don't know exactly. if he's the Heartbreak Man. I don't, the Heartbroken Man sounds like, you know, he, he may emerge in triumph. I feel like you can become a man without having your heart broken, but maybe that's like... Maybe that's just me wishful thinking. <laughs> perhaps, perhaps. Yeah. Oh, man. Well, Matt, we want to let you get back in and enjoy the uh, the rest of WrestleMania. I guess you know. Uh, I know you made, and if any of the, the our listeners have not seen it, you should go uh, on the website and see the video that Matt made about The Rock yeah. and why The Rock is the greatest of the WWE wrestlers. Um, yeah. Because just, of his. Just very quickly, the last. The last match is actually really curious because it's The Rock versus John Cena, and it's the rare sort of face versus face match. The, the face is very short for baby face, which is the sort of hero of wrestling. And usually in a wrestling match, you have, for instance, earlier this evening, there was like 
the guy who hates Mexicans, that was basically the sum total of his personality, versus the Mexican guy. And so it was very clear who was the bad guy and who was the good guy. And in, like, the, the John Cena versus Rock match, it's actually sort of unclear who the writers hope we are rooting for, and also, like, who the crowd is sort of rooting for, because, like, there are definitely, like, a lot of people here... I don't know. I mean, like, neither of them are, like, you know, exactly of the moment. You know, like, The yeah. Rock has sort of, like, not been the most active wrestler for a long time. And John, even John Cena is, like, what, like, 10 years, 15 years old, you know, in terms of his career. So, I don't know. I don't know. It's, it's, it's interesting to predict, like, like, who's going to win and whether or not they can make it a satisfying ending. Well, right, you want right. that. I mean... I'll, 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 I, I think The Rock probably wants to get on with being the world's biggest movie star, right? You made this point in the video. Right, that, but the question know. is, like, okay, so The Rock loses. Is everyone going to leave being like, what a great ending to WrestleMania? Are they going to be like, ugh. You know, like, like they, have, they have to sell it. Can you know, the Rock... Like a lot, with a real unscripted supporting event, you don't have to worry about that. But if, like, you're scripting the outcome, and you should be like, wow, I can't believe that just happened. And, like, I can't wait to see what happens next. So, like, if The Rock is going to lose, he has to lose in, like, a way that, like opens the door for other stuff. Can like, he, I don't know. Like, can, like can there, he, there, I mean, there is speculation online that, like, John Cena will, like, turn full heel and, like, straight-up cheat and, like, beat The Rock in a way that, like, The Rock is, like, out for revenge a year from now or two years from now and sort of, like, the door is open for, like, a third, a third match. Can, can it be, I mean... Anyway. Can, can you retire... Uh, as a professional wrestler and become like a professional wrestling sort of elder statesman? Like, uh, you I know. I mean, you can, but you don't want to retire by like losing. You know, ideally you want to retire like on a high note and sort of like step out gracefully. So well, I guess, I guess. If the that, Rock is going to retire, this isn't the way. I guess that could happen and he could set up like the Rock Foundation on 125th Street and, you know, start, uh, start yeah. helping people. And he'd still rock, periodically wrestle. <laughs> even Jerry the yeah, King exactly. Lawler was. Even Jerry the King Lawler would continue to wrestle after he had been a commentator for like. I mean, he just had a cigarette somewhere in the back of his closet. Yeah, and he, uh, he I just played think that before, like, before something interesting happens. Okay, okay, okay. Right. Get, don't get some of that Perrier sprayed all over you by Triple H for us. All right. Hmm. I don't. I don't think he does the Greenwich Stomp thing anymore. But oh. I'll let you know <laughs> if he goes back to that persona. I will. Okay, uh, I'll talk to you soon, guys. Give all right. <laughs> and we'll be back to the regular episode with me and Pete in just a second. And we're back. Wow, that was an exciting. Uh, that was an exciting. I think I heard the crowd noise a couple of times in the background there, and I, I kind of felt bad for Matt that we were making him um, miss whatever exciting thing uh, was going on. But such is the dedication of an overthinker that you know he will overthink um, if you can fill the unforgiving minute. <laughs> I feel like he was so full of adrenaline and energy that we didn't interrupt him nearly enough for him to come down off his WrestleMania high. So I'm sure he went right back into it with a great deal of enthusiasm. Yeah, we could. Very- and he got those hot dogs. Well, yeah, good, good point. Yeah, probably probably important to have a little get a little protein, get a little uh, get a little sustenance, right, to kind of yeah, endure yeah. WrestleMania because WrestleMania seems like it's a, a many hours long um, event. <laughs> Yeah, definitely. It is a. It is a. Uh, it is quite an endeavor. You need to. Uh, you need to get some sweet mouth music going on for the uh, for the WrestleMania. So the. Um, so it's simulcast. It's simulcast alongside the. Uh, alongside the live performance of it. I don't even know the live you happening. Even, do you even go to see sporting events, Matt? <laughs> 
probably you probably don't go to see sporting events. I right? don't think of of WWE wrestling as a as a sporting event. Oh, well, but I bet you that the experience of seeing it is similar to a sporting event in a lot of sort of theatrical ways. But if you ever go to a place like Giant Stadium or... or Big, yeah, I go to the stadium. occasional. I go to the occasional Dodger game out here. Yeah, but, but, you know. and isn't there a TV at the Dodger game that's showing you what's happening at the game you're currently watching while you're watching it? Yeah. Oh, yeah. It's not that. It's not that part that that I'm I'm curious about. I had I had sort of always assumed because I I have never seen professional wrestling live. Um, oh, you I, thought it was pre-recorded? Yeah. I I always assumed that they did it. You know, that they did it on Thursday, punched it up, and then edited it, then and then aired it Sunday night. No, no, not WrestleMania, and and I think most of the time it's live. I, I don't know if Smash, if like SmackDown is live. I don't think so, um, but I know that the big events, the pay, the pay per view events um, are, are live. Yeah, I, I believe so because you don't want the results to get out. Well, right, right? yeah, that's the thing because it would be impossible to to keep that in, right? Yeah, yeah, and you can even get what it looks like you can get live streaming of SmackDown, uh, probably illegally. I'm like searching for for stuff that I don't even want. But uh, but I mean, I, there was a time where I really watched a lot of wrestling and loved it. But it was it was a little while ago. It has fallen out of my arms during the March of Progress. Sure. So, but we'll pick it up again, definitely. It's <laughs> like we did. Yeah, 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 yeah. It's like the place of Sophocles. Yeah, um, exactly. If anyone can correct any of that, like, oh, it, by all means, like, weigh in with a well actually in the comments because that's a conversation that we can flesh out more i think uh, but this, so this is a busy this is a busy media night right like yeah geez the, the rest oh. wrestlemania yep uh or busy media weekend i guess so that we can encompass more things and and yeah, yeah. sort of like let's define the parameters of of my statement in order to make it more true right uh <laughs> like um you know jurassic park 3d wrestlemania yep. Uh, the two-hour season premiere of Mad Men. Which I think a lot of our, our listeners would probably think is the biggest event of the weekend, even though they're wrong and it's WrestleMania. <laughs> but, <laughs> sorry, guys. <laughs> and also, I mean, Game of Thrones, like, uh, if you were on the internet last uh, last week, Game of Thrones broke the internet for, you know... Oh, it did? Yeah, you couldn't get anything. I mean, every, everyone was just busy torrenting Game of Thrones. Uh you couldn't get get anything. Um, oh, wow. I had no idea it had that kind of profound effect on people's bandwidth. Downloaded. I mean, yeah, yeah, yeah. I eventually did get to watch it, which was really great. So, uh, and not from torrenting, but and but I did get some help. So, thank you for the help. Uh, you know who you are. Uh, but uh, but yeah, no. I mean, it's uh, it, it is back, and it's and this is. It seems like the season is kicking off again, and and it seems interesting that uh, I don't remember there being. This feel this is like a this is like a rocky boxing match. It feels like, which I don't remember it feeling like before, where these Sunday night shows are just slugging it out, where each one wants to be the big thing that is happening, right? And it's just they're going to come one after the other, right? Like, uh, I mean, did did Game of Thrones and Mad Men used to be opposite each other, right? And like, I, I mean, are they one after? The, well, I guess Mad Men is two hours now, so they can't be one after the other. Well, just right? tonight, yeah, just tonight, but it's because uh, it, it's the premiere. Um, yeah. I mean, yeah. Game of Thrones last week was even watched on HBO by a number of people that makes it a respectable television show, which is not really even the case of any of these prestige shows. Like, it was like 6.7 million people, right, watched the premiere of Game of Thrones on HBO sure. live. 
Yeah, like, and, and it's being broadcast. Sure, and these days the networks would be glad for those numbers, right? Yeah, which is like seven times the number of people that watch the average girls episode, right? Like it's 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 ridiculous. Uh, but of course, people are watching it on, and that's just kind of what we're talking about: watching it on the internet, watching it on you know iTunes or whatever's available. For Game of Thrones, they torrent it because it's not available through these other means. Um, Any, I don't know. I mean, it feels sure. like to me, and I don't know if it feels like this to you. And we can explore other avenues of this. But I feel like between last year and this year, there's been some sort of inflection point with HBO, with 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 Game of Thrones in particular, um, where I feel like last year, if you told me Game of Thrones, HBO needs to put Game of Thrones on uh, on iTunes so that I can download it a la carte. They need to make HBO available a la carte. They need to do this. Last year, I would have said, no, they don't. They make so much money from the cable companies, it would probably be a breach of shareholder, like, of, like, shareholder uh, fiduciary duty or what have you to, for them to do that. They would be throwing money away. Why would they do that? Like, yes, you would like them to do that, but you're only one person, and there's a relatively small number of you relative to the number of people who watch Game of Thrones on TV. For by paying you know one hundred and fifty dollars or whatever ridiculous amount of money it costs to actually get like a good cable connection with internet that has Game of Thrones on this nonsense. Um, and last year I would have been like, no, HBO is not ready to do this. But this year it really feels like I mean I've I, I dropped HBO. You know, like I have a lot of friends who dropped HBO. Um, it feels like. People aren't really watching Game of Thrones the night it comes out as much anymore. I don't hear the buzz about what happened. I hear, like, the buzz of how am I going to get to watch it, right? Like- <laughs> That's, inter- <laughs> That's interesting, right? Like, the buzz about the television show has been replaced by the buzz about about the television yeah, Exactly, show. exactly. We're, like, one meta level removed from the story. Uh, and, and I feel like I feel like the, the, the wind is, is changed, and I mean... I feel like maybe it's because the other HBO shows they don't they don't hit in the same weight class as some of their older programming, right? In terms of number of people who like to watch them, they're critical darlings and people love them. But like, I mean, maybe it's because I mean, people watch True Blood. That's the biggest draw. That's the most popular HBO show, right? Think, like, yeah, and, yeah. Oh. But they haven't recaptured The Sopranos. But like, you know, I don't know when we think of the golden age of the of of HBO. Like, did did really as many people watch Six Feet Under? You know, as watch Game of Thrones or as watch right? Like, there there's this thing we sort of lump hbo together and in fact these these things are sort of heterogeneous in terms of their uh the the relationship between their critical reception and their their popularity i mean like the big one was probably sex in the city right i mean probably i mean we'd always just be guessing you know i i don't know i mean i would be i would be surprised if six feet under had fewer viewers than game of thrones just because tv individual tv shows in general had more viewers back then I mean, which was almost like almost ten years ago at this point, right? Um, for Six Feet Under, which is that's scary. I mean, I know we talked about not being scared of. It's more than ten years ago, um, but yeah, I don't know. It'd be interesting. I'm, I'm like trying to Google it fast enough, but I can't. So we'll just have to leave that <laughs> that leave that in the past. It's hard doing a two hander. Is hard because you can't Google. You don't have the you don't have the pauses right while you pass the while you kind of pass the ball around to to yeah some, exactly to go like Wikipedia things yeah to Google Wikipedia them. things and, and you know find out to consult the oracle to kneel yeah. before you know to have um, the simple blow the leaves out so that you can reassemble them into internet facts. That you then, <laughs> tell the future of what's going to happen well right i mean i think that that inflection point is um i think that that inflection point is probably like house of cards right 
Do you think it's that important? Do you think House of Cards? I don't. I don't attribute a lot of agency to House of Cards in approaching that inflection point. No, no, no. I, I don't. I don't think. I mean, what we're ta- what we're talking about these all these things are kind of putting a face on. I mean, constructing a, a, a narrative around kind of much larger economic and technological uh, yeah. processes that are you know that are underway that are like you know the rock uh, the rock on his inexorable march of time. Right? Like we you know. <laughs> If you, uh, it's, it's the conscious little, the rock, right? If right. If you throw the rock and he opens his eyes after you throw him and his consciousness begins, then he's going to start making up all kinds of stories about agency and, and how he, uh, you know, sort of willed this flying through the air into being. And, and he had, um, yeah. And how you need to like, watch what happens on SummerSlam. (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> but yeah, no, yeah I, I get, I get it. I mean, I think because I think people often over overestimate the influence of networks and corporations in determining consumer preferences and what people want, right? And like because because you you only have so much freedom to deliver a, a product other than what your customers want from you. Um, and so, to an extent, the tail you know the dog wags the tail, not the tail wags the dog. In terms of people demand what they demand, and and to an extent, if you're like raging because you feel like the corporation isn't providing what you demand, um, you might be thinking, oh, you know, they're totally out of touch. They're trying to be tyrannical and lord this over me but often it's that you are actually part of a smaller group of people than you think or a less economically influential group of people than you think and and maybe that's what's changing i mean not only is i mean netflix making house of cards is part of the same trend as what comcast getting into bed with redbox right and so like, and then there's also blockbuster so the cable companies are trying to develop streaming services at the same time as netflix, the streaming services are trying to develop content pipelines Right. And then sort of and then like HBO, which is in the weird situation of controlling neither. It controls the content, but it doesn't have the delivery and the distribution. Right. Like and, and, and it has a distribution pipeline, which is HBO Go. Right. And it has it's, it's also Time Warner. So it's connected to all that stuff. And it has the content, but it doesn't have them aligned in the same priorities as these other companies. It's like. Um, they and maybe it's no longer going to be worthwhile to be a boutique player in this avenue in this in the this area and you have to like change what you're delivering but we'll see we'll see what happens I and mean, we will see if i mean a lot of people still did watch game of thrones on hbo and and those people paying many times more for that pr- privilege both directly and indirectly through their cable services uh is does matter in terms of whether we will get to watch game of thrones without having to deal with various shady means and 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 social relationships god social relationships <laughs> well i mean that, um, i mean right no no that's that's very interesting right like there was something yeah. like this and, and the- i would say i would, oh, sorry. There was something like this in the textbook market a, a couple uh, a couple months ago, a couple years ago, something like that. When uh, when Apple sort of announced their like textbook, their iBooks textbook initiative, where you know every student is going to have um, uh, ha- buy their own textbook for twenty five dollars on their iPad, right? And like yeah. like like have it right. And and the question was, well, yeah, but you're selling these you know calculus textbooks for one hundred and twenty dollars. Aren't aren't you going to take a bath when when you're selling them for for 25 now and it's like no you know because we can sell that textbook for 25 bucks to five students instead of you know four of those students buying used textbooks right and like there was this market Mm. there was this market and like uh used textbooks and things like this turned over and you pass them on to the class uh to the class behind you and right like they're um uh oh what there was a uh there was a theory with jet magazine 
uh, of all things, right, a while ago, that like the circulation was three or four times higher than the circulation that got reported because it got passed on, you know, and it got seen. Oh, interesting. You know what I mean? From yeah. from person to person, like, have you seen the new jet? And, and like uh, in in uh, salons and like barbershops and things like this. And like so that there was the, there were these like social organizations around uh, uh, around passing a magazine. And, you know, I don't know in, if if I were HBO, it seems to me I'd I'd rather be in the business rather than selling HBO Go for 10 bucks a month to someone who's going to have 10 people come over to their house. I'd rather mm-hmm. sell I'd rather sell 10 episodes. I mean, I'd rather sell each of those people an episode of Game of Thrones for 199. Uh mm-hmm. right? Right, 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 right. Cuz that's, you know, cuz that's 20 bucks instead of 10. And by the way, that's 20 bucks a week instead of 10 bucks a month. It's you know, it seems like and this is the insidious, I mean, this is the insidious thing about the sort of revolution in in, in this content stuff like um you you're gonna they're gonna end up making more money, you know, selling it to you piece by piece, a la, a la carte like this. Um, or, or in the case of the streaming services, uh, you don't actually own it, right? It's not like the yeah. old days. Um, and it's not like the old days where I actually had a Betamax video cassette that was my Police Academy 4. Um, yeah. With that cool uh, hand-drawn caricatured cover on the front. <laughs> Mission to Moscow, right? Yeah, it was Steve yeah. Gutenberg, uh, yeah, yeah, yeah. you know. Uh, I'm sorry, but I don't think Mission to Moscow had Steve Gutenberg in it. <laughs> I'm pretty oh, sure he had, he had dropped out. He uh, was too big a star. He had dropped out by that point. I believe that he dropped jumped ship after Police Academy two. Huh. Uh, I believe. Yeah, yeah, yeah. There was well, no, there was case, no Mahoney. Was, uh, the Bobcat. By the way, uh, and... I know we haven't really mentioned this in overthinking it, but the passing of Roger Ebert, right? Of course. Oh, is, right. Is, oh, is, that was something I wanted to talk about too. God, we got so busy. We got so busy with this episode. Well, you know, we just have to push on, and we just have to push on and, and talk about it. I was really sad with with yeah. the passing of Roger Ebert, and. And I, I was trying to 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 think about why. Um, I think one was I actually really admired him, right? Like when I was a when I was a, a teenager and thought I was like extremely knowledgeable about everything. Where when I was knowledgeable about nothing and snobbish about everything. Mm-hmm. Uh, when I was a teenager and in my twenties and early twenties and whatnot, like I, I always associated Roger Ebert and like Siskel and Ebert with sort of middle brow. Um, uh, opinions on things, right? Which I, you know, right, right, which right. I, I wanted to reject because, you know, I was a, a serious intellectual and was gonna, uh, I don't know, um, live my life like Rambo as a, you know, great affront to the pieties of the dominant culture, and right, right. Um, as opposed to like Rambo as a uh, vicious enforcement arm of the dominant culture. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 Rambo, not Rambo. Yeah. yeah. Uh, but um, uh, but we get to win this time, Colonel. Anyway, continue. <laughs> <laughs> uh, I became a yeah. fabulous opera. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so the uh, actually, it would be funny to do uh, Sly Stallone. Um, yeah, <laughs> it would be funny to do Sly Stallone reading uh, French poetry, like reading Rampo and Apollinaire. And anyway, yeah. um, so uh, but then, like you know, with the kind of recent that, like the post cancer, the post like. Uh, uh, jaw amputation resurgence of of Roger Ebert's writing. Um, 
I, you know, I sort of actually started reading a lot of it, which is, you know, if you're going to be snobbish about something, you should at least be familiar with it. A, a lesson that was completely lost on me at the age of 19. And, mm-hmm. uh, and I, I realized that it's very good that he's much more knowledgeable than I am about, uh, you know, about his area and that, you know, he's actually a really good writer. And that like for, you know, for an older fella, he totally got the internet and the power of it and like what what the kind of the best of the new things that it enabled him to do and then like when when you know he didn't die of cancer the first time and sort of like kind of lived like endured like went on uh with his jaw amputated uh, unable to speak or eat but like endured and like kept at it persevered like if that was a movie that would have been the end of it you know that would have been like when the credits rolled and like you know uh sort of ebert ebert triumphant right like the apotheosis uh the apotheosis of ebert and 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 yet you know i don't know sort of time rolls on for all of us and like golden lads and girls all must and and uh, you know, and so it's it's that that like the way I associate him with with movies. I guess the way I associate him with my own kind of overcoming my own ill conceived pre- prejudices of of younger days, and and um, I don't know the the sort of feelings about kind of like triumphing over over adversity because of course there's the like the final adversity over which none of us shall triumph. Mm-hmm. Anyway, that's, yeah, that's although, although the onion piece on him was really wonderful. <laughs> yeah. yeah, it was definitely it was sweet. It, yeah, it was nice. I mean, they have a they have a sentimental streak sometimes that's very you know that can be yeah, very yeah. charming when it when it uh, when it emerges. Yeah, definitely. Uh, I, I did. I went through and I read uh, Roger Ebert's zero star reviews as a way of kind of celebrating, remembering <laughs> it. But, and I just I wanted to read one paragraph from one of them. Uh, and this is what the segue was. It is uh, from his review of Police Academy, which he gave zero stars to. <laughs> the original Police Academy. And for a little bit of background, for those of you a little bit too young, like Police Academy came out in 1984. I think it might have even came out very late in 1983. Same year as Ghostbusters. Yeah, yeah, yeah. And by, you know, clearly a comparable movie. <laughs> By the time I became aware of it, because I was only four years old or three years old when it came out, by the time I became aware of Police Academy, it had already spawned several sequels and a children's animated television show. So, like, the existence of Police Academy was something I took entirely for granted. You know, it's like, this is just something that is out there, is Police Academy. And like, like, the song, the characters, it's all for me sort of like... It's it's like how people would think of Homer. It's like a, a story that exists, right? Like I sometimes muse that it's it's sometimes I, I think uh, that it's amazing that there were people who lived their whole lives and never heard "White Wedding" by Billy Idol, uh-huh. right? Like that they like considering the the just how mundane it is for me to hear a Billy Idol song, and it's sort of like a fact of life that Billy Idol exists. Like that it's weird for me to think that the work of Billy Idol at some point somebody had people lived their entire lives and they never experienced it. So it was so so Ebert did not like Police Academy <laughs> and writes a wonderful chapter that a wonderful paragraph that while not particularly stellar among his works, I felt like kept asked questions that I had never thought of. And, then, and then, like when I read it this week opened my eyes in ways I never understood to like what is going on with Police Academy. Right. So here you go. Among the many questions raised by Police Academy, the easiest is, 
what genre does this movie think it's satirizing? Are there any other movies about police academies? <laughs> that hardly matters, since the academy in this movie resembles no police academy known to modern man, and seems indeed to be modeled after a cross between basic training and a prep school. All of the trainee cops live on campus together, in big dorms. The head of the academy is sort of like the headmaster. The campus is green and leafy and peaceful, and altogether unlike, I suspect, the training experience undergone by any real police officers. <laughs> I don't know, there's something about that that just made me laugh so hard. It's like, his main complaint about police academy is that it's unrealistic. <laughs> that is about veris- verisimilitude. Yeah, and it's like, I never even thought... That police academy could conceivably correspond to a reality, right? Like police academy is just this thing that's just there. You know, it's like Bobcat Goldfleet in a police outfit. Isn't that just what people do, right? Uh- <laughs> <laughs> right. Yeah. And, and, and you know, if you have not had the pleasure um, of seeing Police Academy, it's a spiritual successor to, to Porky's, you know, or to Revenge yeah. of the Nerds or something. It's not. Uh, I mean, saying Roger Ebert saying basic training makes it sound like it has something to do with like full metal jacket or like you know an officer of a uh, officer and a gentleman or something like that, right? Like it's it has nothing to do with with no, no. with that. It's uh, yeah, it's, it's like blue in the in the police dean's shampoo and he gets his hair hand stuck to it or whatever. It's like that kind of thing. Like oh no, the girl police officers are showering and we're going to sneak into their shower or whatever. Like there's a lot of shower related humor in the first police academy movie. Uh, but yeah, yeah, it's totally it's totally in that genre. The genre that it's satirizing. It's not even satirizing a genre. No, 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 it's, no, 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 it's not. It's not. It's it, it like like a lot of things. This is one of the most profound things we've ever said. Uh, but like a lot of our comedies these days, it is a uh, it's a farce uh, pretending to be a satire. Yeah, yeah, exactly. And farces are great. Good farces are especially great. I love farces. I've been watching a lot of Frasier, which I don't know. Have I mentioned that on the podcast recently? Because I've been watching a ton of Frasier on Netflix, and that's a great farce, too. Uh Uh, Because it's like uh, we were just talking with some friends about the laugh track in Frasier and how, like, laugh tracks are so annoying and people hate them. But the laugh track in Frasier doesn't bother me at all um, because it's like, you know, you're watching a play and people are like – like, it occurred to me that part of what makes laugh tracks so annoying in sitcoms is that the sitcom is asking you to entertain the possibility that these things are actually happening inside someone's house or apartment, right? And so one of the things that's really offensive about, say, like the laugh track and friends, right, is that, like, the two people are having a conversation that's supposed to be among friends in a New York apartment, and yet there's 150 screaming people in the apartment with them, right? Like, they're like, like, this should affect their reality, right? right? Like, if, if if your show is trying to be naturalistic, then, like, a, a presence of a laugh track introduces the correspondent reality of like a horde of cackling spectators present for every event in these people's lives, right? Uh, and, and and it works for Frasier because that totally is in character with what they're doing. Right? It's like I totally believe that that apartment has 150 people in it laughing and everything that's happening because it's not trying to be a verisimilitude to to a naturalistic portrayal of life. Sure. Right? It's, 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 a, it's you're watching a play. You're watching like a, a, a modern, a ni- mid-90s attempt at a 19th century parlor comedy, right? Like, or, or what have you. Um, so anyway, so I, that, is, that is all those things. We've spanned many, many topics. Yeah, yeah it's, I feel like we haven't even wrapped up uh, uh, Game of Thrones and Game no. of Thrones and Mad Men. I mean, what did you think? You know, I know you, like, like me, have read all, all the books and we won't give away, we won't give we won't away anything. Finish. 
Uh, yeah, exactly. So I don't know. I, I mean, we we have been th- we've been thinking of doing recaps of these, like we did recaps of Downton Abbey. And you know, uh, if if you're interested in something like that, give us a um, uh, give us a shout in the comments because if the if uh, we'd probably be more inclined to do it if we felt like. Uh, if we felt like there was an audience for it uh, with Game of Thrones, because it's non-trivial, there's some non-trivial um, hurdles to overcome logistically, like uh, being on the East Coast and the West Coast, and also, you know, getting the overthinkers uh, uh, the ability to watch the show. You know, yeah, yeah. Um, I mean, like that—that's the big thing—is that like the show threatens to lose the sort of what I like to think of as the towering inferno advantage, which is like, oh no, movies are competing with TV. Nobody's going to want to go to the movies anymore. The way we make them go to the movies is we create a big tent pole that everyone wants to see. We turn it into a big event, and if you can't watch the darn thing on the night it comes out, it ceases to be an event. Right, like so, there needs to be a critical mass of people who watch Game of Thrones the day it comes out for it to continue to have a competitive advantage over like online videos of other sorts and demand a premium price. But anyway, putting that aside for a moment and talking about the actual episode of Game of Thrones, yeah. without spoiling anything, right? Um, I liked it. <laughs> um, it, I mean, the this is should not be a secret to people who haven't seen the show. Um, maybe I mean it might be new information, but it's not like secret information. The third book in the Song of Ice and Fire series is the best right and the third and then I'm, I'm saying that right now like um the third book will be the third and fourth season of game of thrones the third book is the best book it is the most exciting book um it is i think the most interesting book and uh um i'm really excited to see what they do with it now of course a lot of the exciting stuff will be happening in the second half of the book as is the most often the case with books uh so you know next season has a lot to, to deal with but i mean like i'm really i while as i was a little bit skeptical heading into the second season of game of thrones because while the game, the book clash of kings is okay it kind of has problems standing on its own uh, i'm not the biggest fan of it relative to the other books mm-hmm. storm of swords the third book is awesome and uh, they are taking some steps, it appears already, again, no spoilers here, to make what happens simpler and easier to understand. Sure. And, I mean, that's fine. I don't really object to that. Um, I mean, I'm not a purist in the sense of needing this to be the same as the books. Um, I hope that they don't make fear moves that end up cheapening things, right? It's like, you, are you doing it just because you're afraid that people won't like it? Because people like it. You know, people like it. It's very popular. Yeah, sure. Uh, yeah, so these don't books be afraid are, of that. Sure, these books yeah. are bestsellers. But the the right, yeah, yeah. No, I mean, it's it's uh, it's clear. And you know, George R. R. Martin is like involved in the the kind of the story level, though. I, though I guess not not really. I mean, he's uh, he writes he, directs, in, he writes one episode a season. Yeah, right. He writes like the climactic episode every season. Sure. Which is not the last one, but like the second or third to last one. I guess he has um, a, a producer credit, but those are often political. You know, I mean, those don't often reflect. I mean, those often don't reflect day to day involvement in. Yeah, um, I mean, they've certainly talked with him a great deal. The people who are making the show, so I'm not particularly worried that they're going to. And uh, yeah, and uh, and apparently they are privy. Right, the the two showrunners are privy to the the grand plan for the series. So like, what's going to happen in books six and seven? Um, yeah, you know. I'll say I like I like Mance Raider. I like uh who is that actor who plays him? Um I'm gonna I'm gonna quickly IMDB him even though we're doing a two hander. <laughs> quickest way to IMDB him is to IMDB Rome, right? Because that's where he that's what he was in. And um oh man, and he didn't put him at the top of the cast list of Rome. How did they get away with that? He's like in IMDB, he's like twelve people down. Uh, Karen Hines 
Yep. Sharon, Sharon Hines, Karen Hines plays the king, the king beyond the wall, Mance Raider. Uh-huh. Right. And that's not a spoiler. He's a major character in the series. He's introduced in the first episode of the season. He hasn't been in the show to date. Um, and in and in the book, and I mean, we'll talk a little bit of the differences in the books. He's kind of a he's portrayed as as probably a younger man than Karen Haynes generally is. Um, certainly, like a, a rather rough and tumble physical sort of dude. And I thought that this is an, this is something we can discuss sort of without spoiling things. Is like. Some people, I think, complained that Karen Hines was, like, too old or too fat to play a character who's supposed to be, like, fairly physically adventurous. But then I went back and I looked at some of the, like, stills, the production stills of him in the show. And, like, they do a pretty good job of dressing him in baggy clothes that make it look conceivable like he might be in good shape. (laughs) (laughs) Like, I mean, they've certainly put um, Gwendolyn Christie in clothes that make her look like she might... I mean, she's certainly in fine shape. She's the one who plays Brienne of Tarth, who appears in the second season and will appear again in the third season. Um, You know, the the woman knight who's supposed to be this giant person. And they did a great job of making her look, you know, reasonable as, as a female knight. But I'm pretty sure that the armor that she's wearing is a size or two bigger than what she would actually wear, right? If she were actually to wear, like, clothes that fit her. And, they're, and they design it to make her look more imposing, to make her look larger than she is. Because she's very tall, but she's not really very huge. Um, and she's certainly beefed up for the role. But, like, it looks like the costume designers understand what sort of figures these characters are supposed to be striking and are and like the art direction and all that stuff is working together to 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 compose these things in a thing in a way that is i think exciting and, I, and i'm glad with that i think that you can also see that in um in uh, Sansa's character, I feel like the way they've evolved her look over the course of the seasons uh, has has been really really cool and interesting, and has sort of de- you know depicted events in her narrative and in development of her character in really cool ways. Right. Um, so yeah, I mean, art direction and, and costume design is one of the things you can talk about in a show without giving away too many plots. <laughs> I like Daenerys's new blue look. Daenerys is wearing a lot of blue this season, sure. which she she wore she wore white at the beginning of the first season, and then she turned into wearing brown for most of the second and third seasons right and what was she wearing was she wearing pink in the second season when she was in karth i'm trying to remember oh in karth yeah some something like that but like i I was thinking like when she was uh uh trekking across the the vaeus dorthrak right like the vice yeah 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 Oh, she wore a very pale blue, and she might have done that in her in her was that in her wedding too, or is that no no? She wore a pale blue when she was in Carth, and now she's wearing like a much brighter, more vivid blue. Uh-huh. Um, which I mean, I think I think is uh, is kind of awesome the way that they've kind of evolved the colors. I know that's something they do in Breaking Bad also, is they pick a color for each uh, character. And they and they have the character always in and around things of that color. The most obvious one is Marie, who is always purple. Um, and then if they want to communicate a big change with the character, they can change the character's color, right? And so, like, Walter can go and, and he can wear brown, right? Or he can wear purple or, like, you know, because he's, he's feeling royal and they put him in a different color than he was in before. And it instantly changes things. I actually remember the first time I noticed that trend, uh, that phenomenon, as it were, that, that device, was when I saw Showboat on Broadway, a revival of Showboat on Broadway back in the 90s. Uh-huh. Um, and uh, I forget exactly what year it was, but there's a the scene. Won't you the song? Won't you Charleston with me? Right, is a song about doing the Charleston. It's terribly topical. <laughs> the, the dance from the twenties, and um, 
And there's the lead actress who's singing the song, and then there's everybody else doing the Charleston. And we stayed after for like a Q and A because it was a school trip, and uh, and and they talked about how they put the lead actress in a yellow dress and everybody else in different colors that were more subdued, so that you could tell who the lead actress was. And I was I was kind of amazed by that, like the information that you're getting that's non-textual, right? Sure. Um, and I think we talked about this in terms of. Um, Ben's article. I talked about this a little bit in terms of Ben's great article from this past week that got a lot of love on Reddit. The article about Darth Vader and the Wicked Witch of the West, about how like villains who are kind of impl- uh, dig, dig. Oh, sorry, it was dig, not Reddit. That's right. His other stuff, his, his Imperial military stuff, got a lot, a lot of love on Reddit. Uh, the uh, the Darth Vader Wicked Witch of the West ones uh, got a lot on dig. But it was about villains and and then backstories and villains who who appear to have. Um, from our perspective, the villain's lack of motivation is part of what makes them evil and scary and effective, right? Is that we don't entirely know or understand what the villain is trying to do. I think that was sort of what he was talking about, right? Um, and that, like, uh, and that pure evil, right, is something that he was concerned with and kind of uh, the idea of evil. Um, and, and one of the things that I want, I, I, I recollected from an earlier article I'd written and other stuff is what kind of information can you get across about a character, about a show without coming out and saying it, right. without coming out and making it semantic? Because once you make it like say it and make it semantic and out there, then you get caught up in all of the conventions of your genre and your literature. And you often feel the need to say things that don't need to be said. Um, uh, right, and this is, I mean, I think the best successes of the, the TV show are the, the moments when they manage to do that, right? Like, there's a great scene in the first night. I've talked about it before, I think, um, with Are you going to say in the first Night Court? In the first episode of Night Court? No, yeah, in the no. first, episode of, <laughs> first episode of Night Court when yeah. uh, Harry Anderson, no, uh, in, in the first season of, um, uh, of Game of Thrones, uh, a, a scene that doesn't exist in the book because the character doesn't exist in the book, after, like, Meister Pycelle has an assignation with Roz, Right, yeah, yeah. and he gets up and he it's does. Also some... in Frasier, by the way, she's also in Frasier. Oh, Roz is Roz. That's a joke. She's the producer. Never oh, mind. I see. <laughs> not the same character. Not a prostitute, although she does sleep around a lot. But anyway, continue. <laughs> <laughs> oh, Roz. Um, the I, I think there's a Roz in Night Court also. And I'll... yeah, that's right. Wow, the world is. It's all <laughs> we're in the vortex, as as Pound would say. <laughs> um, the. Uh, uh, you know, and Meister Pycelle gets up and does some deep knee bends, right? Yes. And it's a scene not in the book, but it's so, oh, it's, it's just so, it, it's the best sort of, and I keep coming back to it because it's the best example I can give of like kind of importing, how do you do visually or how do you do in terms of like dramatic storytelling and like visual storytelling? Um, uh, how do you achieve like the great achievement? And it is a great achievement in, in the Song of Ice and Fire, um, uh, books that uh, you know of like creating this world that feels very textured, you know that yeah. feels very sort of filled out and like fully rendered out to its edges. You and- you you left out my favorite part of the deep knee bends though, <laughs> which is that he's wearing a very transparent garment and he's backlit, so you can sort of see how frail and slim his body is. Oh, right, 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 right. Yeah, 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 he's he's practically yeah he's practically uncovered. Yeah, 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 exactly. Which mirrors something that happens in the book when they talk about his beard. Right. And like about how the fullness of his beard makes him look like more healthy of a person than he really is. Oh, right. Yeah. I mean, that ha- that happens when when Tyrion. Well, uh, yeah, we don't have to spoil anything that happens. Well, it's in the second season. I don't yeah. know. I mean, to, yeah. to a certain extent, how how long do you give people? You know, I guess the, a shaving scene isn't as big of a deal. It's not a huge spoiler. Yeah. <laughs> <But> yeah. <laughs> 
right? But anyway, I interrupted you. I'm sorry. You were talking about. Um, like, well, yeah, it, it happens. I mean, it's something that 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 they go on in the uh, Roz in Night Court was played by Marsha Warfield, um, yeah. who uh, uh, who was also in, uh, I guess, Empty Nest. I was surprised that when you were saying there's a large imposing actor in Night Court, you didn't pick Marsha Warfield. <laughs> First of all, because her last name is Warfield. <laughs> no, Second Richard, of all, Richard Mole or Mall Mole. Yeah, Richard I mean, Mole is, you know, yeah, uh, taller still by by a. Uh, uh, he's like a lot. he's like Luther from Coach Tall, right? <laughs> <laughs> wow, he's and, working. Wow, he has on IMDb Pro. He has some stuff in uh, in. In production right now, a lot of credits from the 2000s. That's nice. I'm really glad that Richard Bull is working. He's 70 years old. Oh wow! Yeah, well, uh, he didn't show the many lives of. Uh, oh gosh, um, I'm trying to remember what it was. The one where the guy turned into a dog. There's <laughs> <laughs> a Nickelodeon show about a guy who turned into a dog. The many good, the good, the many good deeds. Uh, hold on a minute. I've almost got it. Uh, the good deeds of, no, it's not the good deeds of the righteous man or the sins of, oh, no. <laughs> gosh, darn it. Nickelodeon dog. Okay. hundred good deeds of Eddie McDowd. The hundred good deeds for Eddie McDowd is that show. And that was, that had him in it too. And he was in it. Oh, a hundred deeds for Eddie deeds. McDowd. Uh, not good deeds. Just no, just deeds. deeds. Yeah, so we yeah. just said they were ambivalent deeds. They were deeds of a morally, uh, morally vacant nature. <laughs> <laughs> uh, yeah, of a morally, of a morally uh, questionable nature. Yeah. So yeah, it's. I mean, we'll do it. So um, let us know. We also might like to do uh, after after action recaps of uh, Mad Men. Um, also, so if you're interested in in um, those things, would you let us know in the comments uh, of the uh, of the show notes on on this episode because we would like to um we're getting more we're getting more into doing uh doing this video and as we wrap up here i guess it's probably okay for us to plug our to plug our video series we um we did uh we we're sort of uh, now sort of fully committed like we've thrown our hat over the wall with this uh uh, with this Eurovision um, video series, and it's it's good. It's fun. These things have been fun to do. I think Pete, you had fun doing yours. I definitely had fun doing mine. I, I had so much fun, in fact, that mine ended up being twelve minutes, and and we decided um, that that was not uh, that that was not okay for an online video. No one was going to watch that, so we uh, we chopped it up into little pieces, um, <laughs> much like. Never mind. <laughs> no Game of Thrones spoiler. <laughs> <laughs> no, 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 no. So, uh, uh, so we, um, you know, we, we chopped it up into into shorter pieces and things like this. We're, lear- you know, we're learning uh, because it seems like, um, you know, this. It seems like this online video thing is uh, is going places. I, I, I think it's going to be big. Yeah, one of these days. One of these days. <laughs> well, yeah, one of these days. Uh, so you know, and and I mean, admittedly, uh, it's a. Uh, I suppose it's a minor cultural event, but but uh, I think you can expect to see more. Um, more content from us uh, along these lines, the podcasts and the videos and the 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 episode recaps as Google Hangouts and and you know and stuff like this. It seems because uh, it, it seems like the way that that's that's the way that the internet is going. So you know, go go check it out. If you search for overthinking it on YouTube, will come up and and subscribe to our channel. Um, 
And, uh, you know, uh, t- tell us what you think and uh, comment on the videos and get, get going. There's so many, I mean, speaking of Reddit and Dig and YouTube and all, the, there's so many places at Facebook, Twitter, there's so many places where we have to keep up with the comments on our stuff. I mean, it's, mm-hmm. it's just exhausting to just to kind of find, right, all mm-hmm. the places because we want to talk to those people. We want to talk to those audiences. Mm-hmm. Yeah, no, definitely, definitely. And we do. And I think I'm subscribed to the YouTube channel. Overthink it. Yay. Yeah. It's uh, we couldn't get the URL we wanted. Someone else had taken um, Yeah. Someone else had taken overthinking it, which just chaps my hide. But uh <laughs> you know, but if you just search for overthinking it on YouTube, you'll find you'll find us. Click on Otis, you know, you'll find yeah. uh you'll find us and uh, you know, and tell us what you think because you know, honestly, this is the direction. Right? <laughs> like this is this is a vision of the future and we'll get better at it, but this is the way that uh this is the way that we're going because this is the thing more and more that we're sort of excited to do. Great. Yeah, so uh, you can still email podcastoverthinkingit.com. You can uh, call 203-285-6401. That's 203-285-6401 to call or text. Uh, join the conversation on the show notes for this episode and uh, listen uh, to next week's episode. Until then, you can find us, videos, and occasional articles still. We're, we're not giving up the long form. We're still going to write 40,000 words on Dragon Ball Z. <laughs> one of these days, one of these days. <laughs> uh, on overthinking.com, where we subject the popular culture to a level of scrutiny. It probably doesn't, doesn't deserve. I'm going to take my clothes off and do some deep knee bends. Is they're going to do Game of Thrones, like, uh, was it Operation Miami? <laughs> Academy one? There, there's so many police academy movies. <laughs> oh, man. And many, many wonderful things. Oh, they're coming out with a new one, a remake in 2014 of Police Academy. Oh, uh, really? Is anyone... Uh... Is anyone lined up already to, to be in it? Uh, not as far as I can tell. Let's see. Director attached Scott uh, Zab- Zabielski. Zabielski. Yeah. Um, let's see. Uh, oh, wow. There are writers. Oh, yeah, but a lot of the original writers are getting credited. It's written by the guys from Evolution, huh. that David Duchovny movie. Huh. Are we still recording? Yes. Okay. <laughs> <laughs>